Hello and welcome to this episode of the Civil Law Podcast from Pump Court Chambers. Our guest today is Shona Love. Shona is one of our recent tenants at Pump Court and joins us following an interesting and varied career, including time working in legal roles at the BBC and for the NHS. She has experience of diverse areas of law across the globe, working at law firms in both New Delhi and in Shanghai, and slightly closer to home, has also been called to the Bar of Ireland by the Honourable Society of King's Inns in Dublin. Most importantly for us, she recently accepted a tenancy at Pump Court Chambers following her pupillage here, and has also just finished a secondment working with Senior Coroner Harris, uh, who is His Majesty's Senior Coroner for the Inner South District of Greater London. Uh, welcome, Shona. Hello, thanks for the very kind introduction. So today we're going to discuss disclosure in the coroner's court. How does disclosure work in the coronial jurisdiction? So um, the starting point is really to understand what the law says about disclosure and inquests uh, in order to understand really how it works in practice. There are three key pieces of legislation, uh, the Coroners and Justice Act 2009, the Coroners Inquest Rules 2013, and the Coroners Investigations Regulations also 2013. And in terms of helpful authorities, Jervis on coroners is, is very good to consult when issues around disclosure arise. Uh, so too is the relevant guidance on the judiciary website. And so if we're, if we're looking at the main provisions relating to disclosure, these can be found at Schedule 5 of the Coroners and Justice Act and Part 3 of the Coroners uh, Inquest Rules. And so the best way um, to summarise really how it works is quite helpfully outlined in the 2013 Worcestershire case, which um, I'm sure we'll discuss a bit later on. But essentially in coronial proceedings, disclosure is a two stage process. And so the first stage is disclosure to the coroner, so incoming information. And the second stage is outgoing disclosure in which the coroner decides whether there can and should be on onward disclosure to interested persons and potentially the public. Um, I should also add here that where interested persons are unrepresented, it falls to the coroner to ensure they explain how it all works. So um, how does that work in practice? Let's look first at the incoming disclosure you mentioned. Um, certainly. So, so the way in which the coroner will gather evidence can happen in a number of ways, really. So at the first stage, the coroner may request all reports or other material which they believe to be relevant, uh, reasonable and proportionate for the purpose of assessing the scope and content of the inquest. And, and so the coroner may request evidence from a variety of different sources, um, organisations, for example, like uh, hospitals, the police, um, and also family members. Um, some of these, of course, may also be granted interested person status. And what comes with that status? Well, what comes with that status is their ability to participate uh, in the proceedings and essentially have sight of disclosure. What about parties who are um, unwilling to provide documents because, for example, they may feel those documents will incriminate them? Um, does the coroner have any powers of compulsion? Yes. Um, so, so the coroner does have the power to compel an interested person to provide evidence. And um, the way in which a coroner can do this is to issue what is called a Schedule 5 notice, uh, 
pursuant to the Coroner's Injustice Act. And essentially the content of the notice will, will say something along the lines of you are required to provide X by Y date. But an interesting person will be given the opportunity to make representations if, if they consider they are unable to comply with the terms of, of that notice, um, at which point the coroner might revoke or vary the notice. But a failure to comply can result in repercussions. Um, so it may well be a fine up to £1,000 or uh, let's say if evidence is altered or concealed, even as serious as imprisonment. Um, so, so they are really important notices. An interesting case, perhaps, to briefly just discuss here in relation to that is um, the one I mentioned earlier, Worcestershire County Council and Safeguarding Children Board um, versus HM Coroner 2013. This case uh, involved the coroner making an application to the High Court requesting disclosure of reports held by the Safeguarding Board the inquest concerned the death of a 16-year-old girl who very sadly took her own life and the safeguarding board argued, in effect, against disclosure of the reports on the basis they were protected by what's called public interest immunity and that it was in the public interest to withhold disclosure uh, to facilitate and promote candour from those essentially who, who contributed to the report. They also argued and or that disc disclosure was unnecessary. And, and so in terms of the decision in that case, Mr Justice Baker came down in favour of the coroner, finding that the public interest in the pursuit of a full and appropriately detailed inquest firmly outweighed the claim for non-disclosure. So this case demonstrates that coroners can expect a greater level of disclosure to enable them to properly assess the scope of an inquest. At this juncture, um, Tim, I should probably also say that there are, of course, cases which turn on different issues and different outcomes uh, arise. And, and we have seen that in a recent case last year um, of HM uh, Senior Coroner for West Sussex and Chief Constable of Sussex Police, where the court refused the coroner's application for disclosure on the basis it was protected information under a slightly different regulation and that there was no public interest purpose uh, served by disclosing it. So, of course, um, there the, the can also be different outcomes. So now moving on to um, outgoing disclosure, so disclosure by the coroner to uh, interested parties, interested persons, sorry. Who will get what? Well, in, in classic lawyer fashion, the answer is it depends. Um, the, the rules under part three I mentioned earlier, uh, specifically rule 13, deals with disclosure that is requested by an interested person to the coroner. It says, uh, subject of rule 15, which we'll come to in a moment, where an interested person asks for disclosure of a document, the coroner must provide that document or a copy or make it available for inspection as re reasonably as practicable. So essentially then, that is basically what it says you can have disclosure unless uh, restrict there are re restrictions um, and so rule 15 outlines those restrictions um, where a coroner may refuse to disclose information S some of these restrictions are things like uh, the request is unreasonable or uh, it's irrelevant to the investigation or relates to criminal proceedings for example so a coroner may have, let's say, received a disclosure, uh, received disclosure under Worcestershire, i.e. for their eyes only. And then on review of that information, the coroner may deem it irrelevant to the scope entirely. 
And so therefore it's not disclosed to any interested person. But I should say at that point, if an interested person disagrees with that decision, um, then they may well challenge that by way of just judicial review. And in terms of timing, when's disclosure provided to IPs? So like many other legal proceedings, disclosure in inquest is an ongoing process, generally speaking. If, let's say, you have a particularly complex inquest or an inquest which is going on uh, ongoing for any other reason, it may well be the case that a pre-inquest review hearing uh, takes place where the coroner will set directions for interested persons to comply with. And those directions may include disclosure deadlines um, or, as I touched on earlier, a timescale may be set out in a Schedule 5 notice um, compelling that, that time timescale. Uh, do we find that there's ongoing disclosure? Are, are there ongoing duties to disclosure for the IPs? Um, does do we do we find disclosure coming out from the coroner um, uh, after the the dates that are set? Yeah, so quite frequently, um, regrettably, uh, deadlines are not always met uh, in reality in practice, um, and so unfortunately you, you do see on, on both sides of the coin whether that might be um the the coroner's office being able to get it out to the interested persons in time or the interested persons uh, just simply cannot comply with, with the time scale and so what usually happens then is either side will will notify um uh, either or and, and explain the reasons for the delay um particularly if it's more uh, the interested persons that are delayed they, they will obviously have to contact the coroner's office as soon as possible to explain the delay delay um and so if the coroner deems that reasonable um that that shouldn't be an op- a problem but of course as, as we discussed earlier the schedule five notice is, is an option to compel yeah i was talking to somebody today um who was indicating that they'd received new disclosure i think i think uh four or five days into a hearing um but but it but it all went in yes i think i think i think really it depends on probably who's your coroner (laughs) yeah that's so often the case (laughs) are there any particular factors uh which need to be considered when disclosure is being made uh, yes. So in addition to assessing the relevancy, reasonableness and proportionality, um, there are other factors uh, such as issues arising under data protection law that may be engaged or where evidence relates to other confidential information um, that might have been disclosed in other proceedings, uh, such as a criminal case, for example. Looking at the Data Protection Act first, then, or in, in terms of data protection law, information may need to be redacted if it contains the personal data of others. However, it's important to note here that when you pass away, you no longer have data protection rights under the UK GDPR and Data Protection Act. So really what we're talking about is personal data that relates to living individuals. There is, however, of course, the common law duty of confidentiality, um, which must be respected in the coronial process. Uh, And this usually involves the coroner liaising with the next of kin, Uh, before agreeing to disclose information, whilst also respecting the dignity and and, uh, privacy of the deceased. In terms of criminal proceedings, in cases where there are historic, perhaps criminal proceedings, evidence that might have been disclosed in those hearings won't necessarily or automatically be disclosed at the inquest. There may be public interest arguments that we've just discussed uh, to withhold disclosure 
but I suppose it's also important to mention, as I'm sure many families have experienced uh, throughout the process, is when there are criminal proceedings that are pursued, this can delay uh, an inquest from taking place. Often it, it, it is adjourned um, until the criminal case is concluded and Schedule 1 of the Coroners and Justice Act sets out when a coroner can and must uh, suspend and resume investigations. We've um, we've seen a few recent instances, I think, of, uh, of inquests that involve sensitive material or where there are particular national security concerns. How does the coronial jurisdiction deal with cases like that? Uh, yeah, so so when a case concerns sensitive material or is of particular national or public importance or security, a coroner may make a request to the chief coroner under Schedule 10 of the Coroners and Justice Act to transfer the case to another jurisdiction or uh, a judge. And often in those circumstances, we will see a judge-led inquest. And a recent example of that is is the high-profile inquest into the London Bridge terror attack in November 2019. And uh, at these type of inquests, often council will need to hold security clearance or are developed vetted on the basis that they are likely to have access to highly classified material. I guess I could plug chambers at this at this point uh, <laughs> to say that we as a chambers are, are very fortunate, of course, to have counsel with that level of clearance um, who can be instructed to provide representation in those kind of cases. Are there any other um, options open to the coronal jurisdiction when we have sensitive material? I'm thinking uh, perhaps about the, the Fulby Garden murders and the inquest into those, or perhaps uh, the inquest touching the death of Dawn Sturgis, which both of which I think have um, national security concerns. Uh, absolutely. So if we're looking at what approaches have, have been taken um, in those type of inquests, then um, you, you're quite right with the example of, of the upcoming inquest into the death of the Forbury Gardens victims. Um, as I understand it, a pre-inquest review hearing was held only last month at the Royal Courts of Justice. Um, where there was some discussion of applications that have been made for anonymity and special measures for the witness from MI5. And for the public interest immunity to apply to some of the disclosure is, is down to reasons of national security. So the approach taken there uh, in that particular case was to exclude members of the public and indeed the press um, from attending the pre-inquest review hearing which is permissible uh, under Rule 11, subsection 5 of the coroner's inquest rules. And if a coroner considers in, it in the interest of justice or national security to include, uh, exclude the public or the press, that they, they are well within their rights to do so. I believe the final hearing of the inquest is scheduled to, to begin in January next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and so finally, um, you also mentioned the Dawn Sturgis case. Yes, as someone with a public inquiries practice that that's quite an interesting one to see from my perspective yeah certainly so another approach that might be taken is to is is to as you've hinted convert an inquest into a public inquiry um which allows for a broader scope of investigation so the the dawn sturgis case essentially the the salisbury um novichok poisoning case uh, as many would will recognize where under schedule one uh, paragraph three of the coroners and justice act is engaged the inquest then can be suspended um, until the establishment of an inquiry has taken place 
and pre preliminary hearings in that case, I believe, are, are also due um, early next year. So I suppose just as we start to wrap up, I was just wondering about collateral use of documents. Obviously, the the primary purpose of, of the inquest is to answer the statutory questions in relation to the death itself. But I presume that the um, disclosure that is received from the uh, in inquest could be of interest to to the IPs in other contexts. What what do we see that being used for? Yes, that, that's um, that's an interesting point. Uh, I think the in practice, what what you might see is, let's say, um, in, in an inquest, a coroner makes um, a prevention of future deaths. Um, report um, that may trigger um, the interested persons, let's say the family, for example, considering whether or not to bring um, civil litigation. So that may well be um, clinical negligence claims, for example, um, other types of claims under the civil process. Uh, and so it, it's quite interesting um, how it all inter uh, overlaps and there's an interplay essentially between all of the evidence that might come out at inquest. But of course, it's important to mention about inquest that they are, of course, not um, adversarial. They, they are in, uh, inquisitorial proceedings. And so with that... Or at least in, at least in theory. <laughs> <laughs> in theory, absolutely. I mean, of course, you will see um, lots of strategy, I'm sure, playing out in the, in the coroner's court. <laughs> By organisations and the like, but um, but yes, in practice, it, it should it should absolutely be um inquisitorial. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much. It's uh, it's been fascinating to to hear from you on this topic, and we we'll hope to welcome you back to the podcast uh, at a later date. Um, so thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me on. Thank you.